You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for this event featuring Other Names for Love by Tamor Sumru, and he'll be in conversation with Jonathan Parks Ramage. My name is Natalie. I'm the Assistant Events Manager at Skylight Books, and I'm going to introduce you to our guests, and then we will get started. Tamor Sumru is a British-Pakistani writer. He studied law at Cambridge University and Stanford Law School. He has worked as a corporate solicitor in London and a long lecturer at a university in Karachi, an agricultural estate manager in rural Sindh, and publicist for a luxury fashion brand in London. His short fiction has appeared in The New Yorker and The Southern Review. He has published a textbook on law with Oxford University Press and has written extensively for the Pakistani news media. And he is a co-editor with Deepan Anupara of a creative writing handbook on fiction, race, and culture. Jonathan Parks Ramaj is a law school-based novelist, screenwriter, and journalist. His critically acclaimed debut novel, Yes, Daddy, was named as one of the best queer books of 2021 by Entertainment Week. NBC News, The Advocate, Bustle, Lambda Literary, Goodreads, and more. Amazon Studios is currently adapting the book for television. His writing has been widely published in such outlets as Vice, Slate, Out Magazine, W Magazine, Lit Hub, Atlas Obscura, L Electric Literature, and more. He is also an alumnus of the Bread Love Writers Conference. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Oh, there she goes. Yes. How wonderful to be here with you. <laughs> so I think, are you going to start off by reading? I mean, I guess so. Okay, I'll read very, very briefly. Um, passage. We have to get a taste. <laughs> okay, so I'll read from the beginning so that I don't have to explain anything. <laughs> um, other names for love. From his cabin, Fahad could hear his father shouting instructions at someone, his voice so near it was as though he were here beside him, and Fahad flinched away. The carriage jerked, a whistle sounded twice, footsteps thudded down the passageway outside. The crowded platform slid past the window. Fahad set his case on the bed. He inspected his bathroom, sliding its door shut so he could turn around. It was narrow as a coffin with speckled tin walls, a shower hanging sideways on a hook, a rimless toilet. At the bottom of the toilet was an aperture through which the tracks flashed faster now as the train sped up. The smell of mothballs prickled his eyes with tears, which he jabbed away with his fists. He wasn't angry anymore. He really wasn't. Through the closed doors over the chug of the engine, the whistle squealing, he heard his father call his name, the syllables hard as drumbeats. There was a small high window and through it the lowering sun made a hot square of light on his face. His father's voice became louder and louder still. Now he must be in the cabin, Fahad thought, must have his hand raised to the latch of the bathroom door. But when Fahad slid the door open, the room was still empty. It was to punish him, that much was obvious. The train passed the low sandstone barracks of Karachi's cantonment, a giant cannon on a plinth angled towards him, a fighter plane painted in camouflage propped up mid-takeoff. Everything Fahad did, his father twisted his mouth at, but his clothes were too tight, his hair too long, 
that he sat with his knees too close together or his legs crossed the wrong way, that he spent too much time with his mother and his ayah, that he liked to cook and to set a table, that he was charming company to guests, that he was first in his class this year, that he could recite the charge of the light brigade from memory, that he acted in plays, that his voice was shrill. His father was a cannonball, an avalanche, something giant crashing through the jungle. That was what Fahad and his mother said of him in private, one of the little jokes they shared. And now Fahad was to spend the summer with him at the farm upcountry instead of in London. To stay in Karachi, even that would have been tolerable. Even Karachi seemed like civilization. The carriage wobbled and he steadied himself against a little desk that folded out from the wall. They had reached parts of the city he didn't know. Tall apartment blocks, one pale green, another purple, a third yellow. Gaudy washing slung out over balconies to dry, rusting air conditioner casements. The train slowed as the track ascended. They were level now at the higher stories of these buildings. A woman unfurled a bright red sheet like a flag, her arms splayed. She frowned, it seemed, directly at him and shook her head. Stunning. I Thank love you. hearing it in the dulcet tones of your beautiful voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> this is such an evocative and literally propulsive opening. Um, I guess I wanted to start by just asking you about um, what the genesis of this book was what was kind of the first spark of inspiration for you and then how did that evolve over time sure it's kind of like a couple of very disparate things and one of them was that i you know we have a farm in pakistan and i looked after that farm with my grandfather and it was a really um, fascinating and challenging experience and everything was so strange to me and it did look like a giant barbarians and all of that so it was and then and then I realized that that was so much of that was my own prejudice and um so it was this kind of this kind of journey of um self-discovery for me but also about like seeing a place and the people like the way that I saw them was kind of transformed um but I also there was something completely separate which also inspired it which was that I had an ex who um had uh I had a relationship with someone who, I, I mean, I, I slightly wonder if I should say this. No one will know who he is. So I'm, I'm sure it's all right. But <laughs> I had an ex. Me, we want the we want the gay. So I had an ex, and he, um, when he was 16, had ended up in this sort of sexual encounter with uh, like a Cub Scout leader, and it was the, it was it was a it was it was it was you know an, a horrible encounter, and he had. Um, told his parents and then nothing had really happened nothing had happened to the person and then you know when I knew him all those years later that incident still you know it still had this kind of resonance for him and this meaning for him and he didn't really know how to think about it and he didn't know how to think about like part of him felt sort of culpable in some way even though he'd been a, you know a, this, a child and and actually that that really you know interested me of course it was it was such a horrible thing to go through but it also interested me the way that those you know events can kind of change in your mind over time and your role in them can change and then also the way you know that parents might engage with something like that that also interested me yeah i mean it's fascinating and i think that i mean obviously the characters in your book are different than what you're describing but i i do think yes you you do kind of trace this 
this one relationship, which was very formative in these early years. And then over, you kind of see that, how that reverberates um, over a lifetime. And that's also something I wanted to ask you about, because I do think that, you know, this book has elements of kind of like the queer coming of age um, genre, but it also, I think, pushes against kind of the wistful and sentimental sepia-toned um, tendencies that the genre can have. And I, I find that really refreshing, is the kind of resistance to sentimentality that the book has, especially in this central relationship. It's not Call Me By Your Name. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something very different and unique. And it is, I think, as tender as it is violent. Um, in some respects. So I guess talk to me a little bit about, you know, kind of the genre, if you were even thinking about it, if you were pushing against it, and kind of how you infuse the story with, again, both tenderness and violence. Yeah, you know, I think I, I, think I was thinking about it in some ways that I felt like there were these um, tropes about you know, like you said, um, you know, these sort of sentimentalized kind of experiences. And and then also the other trope that I felt like I saw was, um, you know, uh, you know, a young queer person abandoning or having to reject their home or their past or the place they'd come from in order to kind of find sort of liberation and enlightenment in themselves. And often that was like a journey from somewhere rural to somewhere cosmopolitan or from like somewhere like somewhere like Pakistan to maybe somewhere like London or, you know, England or America. And I wanted to kind of, and, and, you know, of course, for some, for some people, for some stories, that's true, but um, I, it wasn't like a truth that spoke that was very, personal to me and I wanted to kind of push back against that a little against that idea as the against that as the only possible I think story just because I'd seen it so often um and then that that about like tenderness and violence I mean I feel like it's so interesting and in a way it um it's why I feel like your you know yes daddy to me it's like a book which has like tenderness it has these kind of tender moments but it also has this really this kind of really dark this darkness and violence to it and I remember actually when we discussed it first before I'd read the book and you described it to me and I was like oh my god this sounds so glamorous and you were like no no <laughs> this this is, this is dark and it is and I think and that felt so um important to me in your book and and actually it felt really important to me in mine as well to recognize the way that violence you know is such a kind of integral part of male relationships it's kind of the way that so many men are taught like it, almost as though it's like a part of intimacy as though it like violence is a part of, of male intimacy you know so I, I feel like it, it violence almost comes more instinctively or it's it's we're told it's like natural it's like a kind of a natural masculine imperative so that it like it seems like that and and then it it kind of weaves its or it it almost dictates the way that relationships between men unfold um so it was yeah it was important to me to to engage with that um 
and then tenderness because I think tenderness in a way it's you know it's 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 like in the face of that in the face of these kind of imperatives of violence to still try to reach across and and you know get closer and form a bond like that's also what I was really interested in how do we kind of cross that divide yeah I mean that's and there's such it's like there's like this like pulsing in your book between violence both physical and emotional um both I mean really in in Fahad's relationship with everyone I mean there is kind of this like push and pull between tenderness between violence and I think what results is a real um nuance um and it ties into what you're talking about like there's not there are no villains in the book do you know what I mean and I think there are no villains in real life I mean my therapist said that once and I was right. like well, maybe not. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think maybe I, not for you, but yeah. <laughs> I think her point was that there are human beings. Everyone is a human being. I mean, and if you are able to peel enough, uh, peel enough away, obviously people do horrific, unforgivable things. Right. Um, but that, but that, that that villain, the idea of a villain is something that happens in a in a Marvel movie. So I do think you did a really good job with that um, in terms of, you know, also the depiction of his relationship with his father. It's not this one dimensional, like, well, you move out of the country and move to a Western city and it's all better. Like it, it's, which is just like not true. It's like not real. There's no nuance in that. So um, I also wanted to ask you you know, about kind of, you know, in terms of queerness, there is, I mean, I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't read the book, um, but there is another queer coded character. I don't know if he would identify as queer, um, uh, probably not use that word, but, you know, there is another kind of queer coded character who's older than Fahad in this family context. And what it kind of allows you to do, I think, as an author is explore the way that queerness has been dealt with within this family over the course of generations and kind of right. over the years, what has changed, what hasn't, um, what's been repressed. There's also echoes of, of, of Fahad's character with this other character um, in the way that you know, his father views him. So what was kind of your purpose in having this, this kind of intergenerational depiction of queerness within I this? Mean, if it wasn't, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm trying to sort of think of, you know, how to, I'm trying to think about how I thought about it. I, I think in some ways there was an idea that I, I liked a kind of mirror, mirroring and, you know, what you were saying as well is a, a sort of like a pattern that repeats across time so that it was important to me that queerness shouldn't seem like something purely contemporary or something that was kind of invented in the modern age but also that there were you know all of these different ways of, of of being queer and and you know and as you said they're not you know maybe that isn't even the language the characters would use i think it isn't um but that there are ways for men to have relationships with men that can be very different that can be intimate um and I think also in a way I wanted to provide, um, you know, perhaps almost an opportunity. It's, it's, you know, it's because so much of the book is about Fahad's relationship with his father. And so in a way that um, relationship is an opportunity for, for his father to sort of 
to do to do it again to get to like do over and maybe do it differently than he did the first time round and 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 just you know an opportunity for kind of growth or for change and to learn from from the earlier relationship and i think also maybe to some extent that i feel like i don't know if this is the case with you jonathan but i feel like there's sort of this kind of gay specter that sort of like haunts me you know it's always like it's like that the curse of the gay that you might be or that you might become like don't become this gay and i think in a way in a way you know um i do feel haunted by a similar specter <laughs> um i think <laughs> um, like one of the books I read a lot when I was writing this was um, Death in Venice mm. and by Thomas Mann. I don't remember that, but in that, in that, this, this character, that this composer who's very straight laced and very conservative goes on this trip to Venice and on the boat across, he sees this man who horrifies him. And it's this like, like this man who's old, but trying to look young and wearing makeup and a powdered wig and behaving in this flamboyant way. And it's, and to the character, to the main character, he's so grotesque, he kind of is disgusted by him. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of the novella, he sort of becomes that character. And mm -hmm. so in a way, I kind of, I mean, obviously something very different happens in my, no my novel, but I like this idea of like, you know, the kind of, the, the model, the a, a queer model that that perhaps Fahad could model himself after or against. Right. Well, I mean, I do. It is that that kind of dynamic definitely is present. I mean, he does kind of rebel against the idea. He, I think he does initially certainly see, you know, the character as as grotesque. Um, it's something he doesn't. Right. Want. But then that perspective shifts over time. Yeah, it's one of the things that I absolutely um, loved about the book. Um, I want to go back to something you said, you know, we, you talked about, you touched on it a little bit earlier, you know, in terms of um, the farm and the fact that your family also has a farm and, and kind of the personal kernel there. I mean, I guess, you know, tell me a little bit about your, your personal journey, kind of mining your personal experience for this book and, and, you know, in describing the farm, obviously it's not the same and obviously this is fiction, um, but, you know, did you feel any sense of responsibility to to the farm, to the people that work the land, to to the whole region? I mean, did, did you feel any sort of responsibility to the place that you were describing as you were describing it? I mean, I suppose I did feel a kind of responsibility and it, in a way it was really important. It has been really important to me that Pakistani readers should read it, read the novel and um, connect with it, but also not not see it as um, inauthentic. So that to see it, you know, to kind of to recognize it, that somehow felt really important to me. And I think that I did feel a kind of a kind of burden, I suppose, because you know, like stories about Muslims, stories about South Asia, the Middle East. That there are they're so often stories about violence about like barbarism about misogyny you know and i really didn't want to um to like to to repeat that trope i really wanted to so so it was but at the same time there was you know when i the violence was was a part of the story so it was really something that was critical for me to include so it was kind of trying to work out how do i do this um without just 
repurposing these these tropes. And I think actually something that was quite important to me was like was that this book should not be about um, religion. And you know, I I'd, I'd um, spoken to a screenwriter who was interested in adapting the the novel, and he said, "Relig, you know, this should be about religion. Religion is where where is you know like an obvious." you know it provides obvious conflict but actually that was really it was really critical to me that this the novel didn't you know it, that that was not the center of this novel that you know it's it's which is not to say that it's not important in stories you know about anywhere but about pakistan too but it wasn't um central to this story um so yes i felt some some responsibility i think I mean, in some ways as well, I kind of felt a responsibility maybe to my own kind of nostalgia for the place and to my own kind of memory of the place that that I wanted. And like looking back at the book, I mean, it sounds maybe it sounds a bit absurd or strange, but it it kind of like I feel like that nostalgia when I look at the book and I look at its representation of the farm because, you know, because there's a kind of truth in it for me as well that, that the farm is sort of changing and that my own relationship with it is sort of diminishing or becoming um you know a bit more distant yeah interesting yeah i mean and there's also what i love is you don't in terms of the farm like you don't shy away from the class dynamics as well like in terms of you know it is it's a very symbiotic relationship that that exists between the owners and the land and the people who farm the land. So I, I also thought that the examination of caste again was subtle. You know what I mean? It's not throughout. I mean, it just you just do such a good job of nuance. But it's not just like big evil boss who who oppresses workers. Like I mean, I, I do think that that you you depict nuance to the relationships. So I, I talk a little bit about kind of your yeah. in this. And I mean, I think it's it's also going back to what you were saying before, which was that I didn't want to write a story with easy villains just because I felt like that well, it's not the way that I see the world. And um even in this question of class, you know, um as you said, these, you know, so you know the farm belongs to my family. And when I go there, there are people who work on the farm and there is this this huge um, distance between us in terms of power and this this kind of power dynamic, which of course made me and makes me uncomfortable because there's this extraordinary inequality and it's really completely by chance that you know I was I was born into one position and maybe the farmer who's tilling the land was born into another, and so. Um, knowing you know when initially when i went back to the farm i really kind of i kind of pushed back against that relationship very hard because it felt very wrong to me and then i struggled to know how to how how to like manage the farm without those relationships you know and um so in the novel i think those questions, because I feel like that the a central preoccupation for me in the novel was like a question of power. Power is this kind of thing that that men want, and it kind of it, it sort of it sort of shapes their desire to. And so, class intersects with that for me, and in in a way that you know, there's this sort of 
um, relationship that Fahad has with uh, the son of a neighbor. And there is a question of class there too. And it really interested me to think about how that might inform desire and desirability for both of them, how that might intersect with, you know, the way they kind of express their queerness to each other. Yeah. And I, I, I love, I love that layering. I mean, I think that, again, it's, it's, it's this, it's this nuance and, and it is, you know, something that's just not simple. It's not, it's not, it's, it's more than just, you know, rich mouse, poor mouse, or whatever the fable is. (laughs) (laughs) There is so much more depth and nuance and intricacy um, that results because of um, class differences. Um, and another, and I, I want, suppose, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say as well that something that really interested me as well was this idea of um, a kind of a diminishment of power to so to sort of see um, a family or to see men who have, you know, like. Fahad's father, Rafiq, at the beginning of the novel has a lot of power and his power sort of increases into the sort of, into the center, you know, as you get to the middle of the novel and then it very drastically kind of tapers off. And that also really fascinated me to think about men at these different points in their lives um, where their power varies very greatly and how that um, changes the way they kind of construct their own identities and changes the relationships they have. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, again, not to give too much away, but there is also when when there is that loss of power, it's kind of like if this this man has has for his whole life has has viewed power as such an integral part of his identity. And when that goes away, all that mm-hmm. he really has left is his family. Um, right. And so I did kind of like I, I love just just that that kind of idea of kind of the trappings of of your life, um, which at one point are so complex, become distilled down to kind of this essential unit, which, you know, can be estranged, which can be imperfect. And it's like, how do you deal with with that, um, especially if you're facing the end of your life, potentially? Right, right, right. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that's another, I also wanted to touch on kind of like the father-son dynamic. Um, there's at one point, Rafiq says something like, um, all of us sons, but no fathers. And I felt like that line had like a lot of resonance throughout the book. Um, for almost every male character, you know, I think Fahad in particular is, is struggling with a father who's defined almost as much by his absence as he is by his presence. In fact, he almost prefers initially to be away from his father, to be with his mother in in London. Um, But yeah, I think also, you know, Rafiq has his own struggles with, with an absence of a father figure. So I guess what, what, what were you thinking about when you were, you know, exploring, you know, father son dynamics in this book? I mean, I think the novel really started, um, or rather the center of the novel was like a father-son relationship. And actually, you know, the sort of the, the, the love story in it kind of came later. And it came partly because I had read this um, interview with Gary Steingart, where he said, oh, every novel needs a love story. And I was like, oh my God, my novel doesn't have a love story. So I was like, <laughs> 
Let me just a good crap. <laughs> I think I was at that stage where I was like, I will literally take any lesson I can find and squish it into my story, which was what I did. But I, I, I mean, I, it, it felt like the novel needed that love story. But in a way, the the bigger or the more important love story is the one between the father and son, and that I was really interested in mapping that across a long period of time. But I was also interested in the way that maybe for men who have relationships, romantic relationships with men, how like a father-son dynamic may be the only model for uh, intimacy or for a lack of intimacy, you know, for something to like emulate or something to push back against that maybe men have or boys have. And, um, and, and in a way, I feel like it's, you know, it's like, it's it's one of the sort of one of the several connections between your your novel and mine too because like this idea of um, a father figure of different kinds of father figures of what happens in that space between the father figure and the son between fathers and sons but also in in a kind of a romantic relationship which which sort of mirrors that and where where power ends up being such a kind of critical determinant um and and yeah i i mean i feel like it's it, it was it was one of the things i loved about your book but like i you know I wondered as well with yours, like just to turn the table for a moment, whether you intended to have this kind of mirror between a romantic relationship and the father-son relationship. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, we all have daddy issues, I think is the bottom line. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. I mean, I do think that is, oh, if, I don't want to generalize about gay men in particular, um, but I do think that there is, Yes, that 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 kind of a father-son dynamic can certainly have um, ramifications across a lifetime. I mean, I think that all parental relationships can obviously affect you and manifest in ways over a lifetime. But I mm -hmm. think, particularly for queer men, there is is certainly um, you know that that dynamic of of fathers and sons. Um, I also, I mean, I also wanted to talk to you about. The, the shift to Rafiq's perspective. So his father also in the book, um, it's weighted almost evenly in terms of, of how mm -hmm. you do kind of close third um, with father and son. Um, and I thought it was so beautiful because you do such wonderful work in terms of what they both see, but what they don't see. Um, so, so there is, and then what the reader is kind of forced to question or fill in um, because of these gaps. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that perspective shift, both from, I guess, a character perspective and the style perspective. Sure, you know, when I started writing and actually for so many of the early drafts, there was no, no shift in perspective and the novel was told entirely from Fahad from the son's perspective and I kept kind of getting stuck like I felt like it just didn't have um a kind of a momentum or a force and when I start and so then I I just tried shifting perspectives just just to see how that would feel and it ended up kind of unlocking the novel for me and then subsequently it made complete sense to me because actually in a way like my central thesis was that 
um, or rather my aim was to kind of um, to show to show both sides really and to show what it you know it felt like I felt maybe like in the contemporary queer narrative of course the point of view the, the queer point of view is like is what we're so used to but I was kind of interested in seeing the other point of view and then and also in like uh, you know Rafik is this sort of patriarch who kind of represents everything that his son sort of rebels against but also wants to emulate but I also wanted to kind of you know I felt so much empathy for him and I kind of really wanted to like look inside his head and to see how difficult it was for him how much he wanted to be close to his son how much he wanted to love to love his son and how you know difficult it was for him how much he struggled with that um that that was really really um important to me to kind of show both of them sort of reaching reaching um outside of themselves towards each other rather than just to to show that from one direction yeah i mean and and it also lends such a beautiful texture to the book again to be able to in, inhabit the point of view of the father someone who could come off as as potentially one dimensional it does again add that layer of depth and there's oh my god the heartbreaking scene where he shows up in London and just gets like an icy reception from his son. I mean, it's just, but, but to be inside, so you, you really, and the, and the power dynamic there, I mean, that, 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 you know, there, there is a desire on his part to really, to try to understand his son. It's not just the scene in the sand of. Yeah, and I kind of love this idea of like um, missed opportunities, you know, those moments where like, you know, one one person reaches towards the other and the other isn't reaching back or the other reaches. Like I, I kind of loved the sort of the kind of heartbreak of that. So I really and that that was also something I wanted to engage with. Yes. Um, I also wanted to ask you, the protagonist is obviously a writer or becomes a writer. And so you always have to wonder. Um, <laughs> um, the, the, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask, there is this um, scene later in the book, he grows up, he's, he's a writer and he's, he's in a writing workshop. Um, and he is kind of, um, in, in, the, in the workshop, he's, he's reminded of, of the farm. Um, and kind of this, uh, and kind of his, his growing up on the farm and the fact that he hasn't written about the farm. Um, and there's this, this one sentence I will read you. What if he wondered for a terrible moment? He'd written nothing in so long because he hadn't written this, because he's written always so far away from himself as though tossing a grenade. And I just thought that was so fucking good and so brilliant in terms of, how it describes writing something that is painfully personal. And obviously I'm not asking you to go into the painful personal detail, um, even if there was one, but I, I am curious as to how, you know, this, this is personal. So I am curious, you know, did this, did writing this affect you in any way? Did you feel like you interrogated things about yourself or learned things about yourself or were first to confront things about yourself or do you just, not want to divulge that and you can tell me to <laughs> never i could never tell you that jonathan <laughs> uh, but I, 
you know, I mean, in you know that that sort of section really, it felt like such a kind of bearing of my soul to myself because I had tried to write so much, so many times before, and I had never tried to write, but I'd always tried to write really far away from myself because I just, it was just I I couldn't I couldn't look at myself with such with such kind of I was really afraid to look at myself so closely, and so with this novel. I, I, you know, I really, I, I, I tried to do that, you know, and actually it was really an interrogation of myself and of my experience on the farm. And the farm just ended up being this very significant place to me because it was this place, this kind of crucible in which like every idea I had about myself as a man, my masculinity, my power, who I was, all of that, um, you know, and, you know, all of my thoughts about myself as kind of cosmopolitan and worldly and educated and all of these things, all of that kind of came together. And I really was kind of forced to think about, you know, how I constructed my own identity and, um, you know, what kind of power I was claiming and where I was claiming it from and uh, all the ways in which I felt like I'd failed and that I'd failed as a man, you know, I really thought that I've experienced that so much when I was on the farm. And so then when I came to write this novel, I that those were the ideas that felt most alive for me and that I really wanted. And actually that this was the big difference when I came to working on this novel versus what I'd written before. You know, when I'd written before, it was always really like, yes, you know, write something, write something kind of light and write something entertaining and write write far, far, far away from yourself for, for so many reasons. But um, with this, with this, I actually, I thought about the things that interested me about myself and that I kind of felt, I don't know if ready is the word to say, but you know, Alex Chi in his book, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, he talks about this imperative, like how, you know, with his first book, he had to, he had to do it. And I kind of, I kind of felt that when I came to, when I, when I, when I worked on this novel, I felt like I had to write about that place that, that, that those experiences were full of these kind of truths about myself and that it was sort of my, my kind of duty to myself to interrogate them. And, um, and yeah, so it, was it traumatic? Was it difficult? Yeah, it, it probably, it probably was because I really felt like I, you know, and the, the main character is close to me in that process of writing, you know, and, I don't know whether you've experienced this, but for me, I had to kind of write away. I had to sort of write and write and write so that he would become someone who was not me, but he started out as me. <laughs> but I had to draw on so many of those experiences. You know, there are these these moments where he sort of is interested in this, in this you know, the son of a, a, of a, a neighbor and his desire is so kind of frightening and horrific and grotesque to him and how does he engage with that desire and of course those were feelings I'd felt and I but I you know to kind of write them I kind of had to go go back to that moment which was you know not a particularly wonderful moment but it was really interesting it was really interesting to kind of shine a light upon it. Yeah I mean there's kind of like the aphorism about if it feels scary um you know 
it's probably a good, it's probably good writing. It's <laughs> 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 not always true. No. Um, but uh, yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I feel like we kind of have to keep it interesting for ourselves at the very least. Do you know what I mean? Like if the process is not, if we're kind of not engaged in the process, like it's impossible to tell what a reader will think, but at least to kind of interest ourselves. Yeah, I mean, yes, and you have that um, that it, it it does course with that kind of wonderful sense of of urgency. I think, um, and I mean, it's interesting that you bring up um, Alex Chi because your book it didn't remind me of Edinburgh. I don't know if you've read his book Edinburgh. I have, yeah. But it, it sort of reminded me of Edinburgh in in terms of the prose style. You guys obviously have different prose styles, but I think what you're both so skilled at is you have an incredible economy of language and a talent for crafting sentences that are very spare. There is not a single wasted word. And for that reason, I think they just kind of emanate with this beautiful poetry um, and this beautiful resonance, which I... Envy because, honey, I love a verbose purple fucking sentence that I have to edit down later. <laughs> <laughs> you edited them all out. They're not in Yes Daddy. They were they were all edited out. If that's even true, Jonathan, I don't know if I believe it. <laughs> um, but this is partially a question for me. But like, how do you approach? I guess um, this is more a craft question. But how do you approach? Um, you know, uh, editing your sentences. You know, I didn't, the way that I kind of wrote the book was that I wrote these full, complete drafts and then I would put them aside and then rewrite them from scratch in the belief that I would hold on to everything in the story that was important. And, you know, because like, I love a, I love like that purple prose too, you know, and I love my beautiful sentences and then I'll just hold on to them and then I'll shape the entire chapter around this one sentence that I can't bear to lose, you know? So the only way I found to deal with that was to put the entire draft aside and start with a blank page each time. And I, but each time I would have a stronger sense of the story. And then I felt like that allowed me a kind of, um, a kind of tightness in the story and to kind of be driven by the sort of the, the energy of what was happening as opposed to, um, you know, like for me, you know, holding on to like sentences that I loved, which is absolutely what I would do. Yeah. I mean, and then how this kind of piggybacking on that in terms of Craft, how, um, how, what was your experience like? Because you come from writing short stories um, and you, you've published many a gorgeous story, short story in many in a <laughs> journal. Um, what was it like? I mean, what was, what was different in terms of, you know, your approach to writing a short story versus a novel, which is obviously a, a different beast? Yeah. I really struggled to switch. And I remember uh, my, um, I was writing the novel as part of a PhD. And I remember my supervisor saying to me that, you know, um, uh, everything I would submit to her, she'd say, oh, but this reads like a short story. And I'd say, no, 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 but this is the first chapter of my novel. And and then she said, and her thesis was that um, the energy on a sentence level, the energy of a, of a short, you know, in, in a sentence in a short story is different from a sentence in a novel. And I've, that's like, I don't know that I agree with it, but that, that idea stuck with me a lot. 
and whether that you know whether it's like a couple of sentences maybe in a short story you have that sense of foreclosure that's kind of coming so mm -hmm. soon and you don't have that in a novel i don't know if that's true but i was really struggling to kind of break through that and i what i started doing was i started kind of trying to trick myself into thinking of the novel it as as multiple novellas kind of stitched together so that's why i read like death in venice which is 25,000 words I kind of read and reread and reread and reread and I was like okay how much story can he fit into 25,000 words and think of the first section of your novel as um as like a novella as a long short story as a novella and see what you can fit in and so that was this kind of way of kind of of, of fooling myself or of, of kind of keeping writing short stories but you know but writing something larger I love that I I do think that is an interesting I mean I've never really successfully written short stories. So I, I, but I, I haven't written a short story in literal years. Um, but I mean, that that is interesting to think about the function of a sentence in each and that the, there is this kind of time constraint in a short story that doesn't necessarily, I mean, obviously there are constraints in a novel, but I think that you're right. I mean, I think that is, that's interesting just from a right. style perspective. Um, well, this has been such a gorgeous conversation. I know you're in London and this is, you know, a million o'clock in the morning. So I think I shall let you go, get some sleep. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for, for this wonderful, I mean, like, I cannot imagine anything more joyful than spending this time talking to you about my book. I mean, I really, we should really have talked a bit more about your book, which is so glorious, so wonderful. <laughs> All about um, you, honey. <laughs> um, but yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you both uh, for joining us. If uh, people who will watch this very soon and uh, in just a few minutes, if you have not already gotten a copy of this lovely book, you can grab one from Skylight Books, we have plenty for you. Um, and if you are not local, you can grab one at skylightbooks.com by clicking the big shiny green button at the bottom of your screen that says order other names for love here. Thank you again to Tamar Sumru and Jonathan Parks Ramaj for joining us. And we hope to see you all soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.